Hello everyone, sorry I haven't been here for a while. It's Dr. Stephen Harvey here with another episode of the Positive Pedagogy for Sport Coaching podcast. It's still a mouthful, but it works. Um, today I've got a very special guest and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So, hello special guest, tell us your name and where you're from. Uh, hello Dr. Harvey, uh, my name is Richard Light, I'm just fresh off a of very short flight from Sydney, feeling full of beans and ready to go. Um, and I'm really happy to be here. I've listened to your podcasts and they, they do a really good job. And uh, thanks for the invitation five minutes ago. Yeah, and sorry to put that on you. <laughs> but um, obviously, as you know, Richard is the professor that started talking about positive pedagogy and then we've collaborated together on the latest edition of the book. So we're obviously very grateful to have Richard spend some time and give us a bit of insights into the genesis of positive pedagogy and that kind of thing. So first, we'll do the fun bit. And you should always start positive and end positive in your sessions, right? So here we go. So um, we'll do this these questions. So you have to give us one or the other. So the first question is dog or cat? Dog. Yeah. So they, I know that because you uh, love dogs. Richard loves dogs, but like loves, loves, loves dogs. Um, Netflix or YouTube? Netflix. Phone call or texting? Phone call. Toast or eggs? You said you're not eating dairy at the moment, so... Yeah, to- toast. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's the devil or the deep blue sea because you don't want the carbs and uh, we're not in the dairy. Um, cardio or weights? Cardio or weights? Oh, weights. Yeah. yeah, good, weights. Facebook or Twitter? I like both, but I'd say Facebook. Doing your mo- most stuff on Facebook. Yeah. Um, ice cream, corn or a snow corn? Like an ice corn. I think it, it would have to be ice because I don't eat dairy now. Oh, right, yeah, snow cone, yeah. Um, mobile games or console games? It's probably neither. Neither, yeah, to be honest. <laughs> and then if you go for a walk, do you like listening to music or podcasts? You know, I don't like listen. When I work out in the gym or I go for a walk, if I go for a walk, I normally walk somewhere natural. I don't want to hear what's around me. And when I'm in the gym, I never use... He- I, like on the trip over in the plane, I had my headphones all the way. Yeah. But in the gym, I never use headphones. I just like to be part of what's going on rather yeah. than... I just feel like the headphones cut me off. Okay. Um, and then iOS or Android? So do you have Apple devices or PC? Oh, definitely Apple, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, they're good for non-tech savvy people like us. Yeah, well, come on, don't, yeah. don't expose me. So yeah, sorry. Um, so let's, I usually do a bit of a script, but as we talked about, we'll just kind of add a little bit. So do you want to talk a little bit about the background to the book, uh, or the, the positive pedagogy kind of concept, where it came about, and how that links to sort of your development over the years and things like that? Yeah, look, you, you said to me earlier today that you liked my work, the fact that it was grounded, it was from bottom up, and I have a background as a, a primary school teacher and then a PE teacher. I coached from my primary school teaching days 
right through from the lowest level to almost the highest professional level of rugby coaching uh, in Japan. And in developing my ideas on positive pedagogy, this it's never been a case of applying theory to practice or of theorizing practice. It's more what my French colleague, uh, Professor Wallian, uh, said to me, it's a, it's a dialectic between practice and theory. Mm-hmm. And that's how I've just been writing chapters in our next version mm-hmm. of the book to come late, uh, next year sometime, perhaps. Uh, and that's been the basis of my work. But it started, the idea started when I was at the University of Sydney in 2008, and I was Mr. Game Sense. And that was, that was a a PE degree and all the all my students were going to be PE teachers and one of them said to me Richard we we absolutely like love game sense there's no question about that and he said I know for one when I go out next year as a teacher that's what I'll be doing mm-hmm. but what do I do for swimming what do I do for athletics mm-hmm. and he it was a great question because I didn't have an immediate answer and I I don't lie and I just thought on the spot and I thought, look, I think if you looked at the, the features that I've suggested underpin game sense and you modified them, I think they'd be then applicable beyond team sports. And that's what I've done since that 2008. That's when it started uh, to think about it. And I developed it initially by, as an academic, I don't have time to coach. The only coaching I do is... Uh, workshops like I'm doing here and I've done around Asia and I've done it places in Europe mm-hmm. uh, teaching my own students it's all very very brief you know you, you don't really have a proper coaching um, experience so I would put my hand up to coach so for example I coached beach sprinting at my daughter's surf club in mm-hmm. Sydney I coached um, and my daughter was has been a really great connection for me through my work, if you read back through my work over the past 20 years, you, you might notice that I start off with very young children and they and I, the yeah. age goes up. That's because <laughs> her age goes up. Because that gave me, her her participation gave me all the connections. You know, it gave me access to great swimming coaches, to, to talk to them, to watch them work. It gave me great access to uh, terrific athletics coaches as well. You know, so I, uh, as well as the surf club, I put my hand up to coach her primary school year six four by one hundred relay team, and because I thought, well, that's that's so technical. Mm. Here's a good challenge for me, and I had to think about it. And I started off uh, reading and talking to people because I didn't have any first-hand experience in coaching athletics or track and field. Um, so I I read, you know, I googled. Uh, I talked to people and I found out what the techniques were. And mm-hmm. so then I started off with the girls and I taught them, this is how you do it. Just absolute direct instruction like anyone else with a traditional approach would do. But as we moved along, I increased the interaction with them, uh, the way that they talked. And after five weeks, they were completely independent. They weren't looking to me for answers. And I remember in the state championships, which is the furthest anyone had ever gotten from her school, uh, they ran in the qualifiers and they qualified for the final, but I, I saw something I thought was technically wrong uh, and I thought, I will, 
when they get here, I'll tell them. But then while they were walking over, I thought, no, what am I doing? I'm not going to tell them. I'm going to ask mm. them. Mm-hmm. But they stopped midway in the field and they chatted for five minutes. And then they came up and I said, what were you girls talking about? And they, it was exactly what I was going to pick them up on. Mm. And I said, so what's the answer? And they told me. And I thought it was a good answer. And I said, okay, well, you've got so much time. Go away and practice. So it wasn't a fairy tale ending. They didn't get a, yeah. a medal or a place. Uh, but just to see the transformation of these girls from tell us what to do, am I doing it right, Richard, to being just about completely independent. And so those, those sorts of experiences have helped me develop it all the time. And it, and it goes on even last year when I was here working at this same uh, symposium mm-hmm. that you've kindly invited me to. Again, uh, last year I did boxing. And it wasn't it wasn't the tactics of boxing. It wasn't fighting in the ring. It was just punching. So we did a jab and a cross, and it was just completely technical. And I, I, I'd done that session once back in New Zealand at the University of Canterbury. So I'd just done it once, and I had, had a bit of an idea. And when I came here, um, we worked as a group facing me, just punching in the air, and then I put him in pairs with the pads, and they were hitting the pads and I was asking the the person with the pads to give feedback mm-hmm. to the person hitting and I made them, I asked them to focus on how it felt because you know, um, if you play cricket or baseball, when you really crack the, you know, the sound of um, leather on willow, when yeah. you hit a, the sweet spot, it's just like heaven. You know, it's just an unbelievable experience, but the sound is part of it and I wanted them to use kinesthetic feedback from how it felt and how it sounded to as feedback on how they're going with it with their technique Mm. so we worked in pairs and that's as far as i went in new zealand but then here in uh, ohio at athens i brought then in a third person as an observer so we had a person punching person holding the pads and the observer who was focusing on the technique, the, the correctness of the technique, and we rotated them. So I found out that that worked really well here because it gave more interaction and it gave more experience of those three roles. But when I went back to New Zealand this year, I repeated it and it was didn't work as well. The point I'm making is, like any good coach, it's an ongoing process for me of refining thinking what I could do better, what didn't go well, what went really well, and that constant process. So I think it's one of the attractive things about positive pedagogy for sport coaching. It's uh, like 2007, and I was at the Bearer Conference, and the chair of the session had said to me, oh, do we need a, another model? Mm. And I said, well, first of all, it's not a model. you know." And then I pointed out that we do, because none of these models apply to team sports and individual sports or across all sports and that's what we needed so it's not it's it's not a model it, and, and again it comes from the ground up and so bottom up is two philosophical assumptions that all learning and our coaching that we do is holistic and humanistic and then it sits on that mm. and I, I think that's a big difference but it's hard work to 
get the coaches to understand it from the bottom up. You know, this, we're, we're very keen to take shortcuts or show me how to do it and just get it done. Mm. It, it requires more thinking. In the beginning, it's far more challenging, but in the end, it's far more effective and far more satisfying. So you go back a little bit and talk. So your background from a philosophical perspective is, and we don't want to labor, over-labor the theory, but the theory is important. So you were initially influenced by a, a couple of people from the readings that you did, like John Dewey and this kind of thing. So just talk a little bit about that and then how that relates to the notion of holism and humanism and that kind of thing. I, um, I'm, I guess I'm not a typical um, academic. I made a late career change. I was a primary school teacher and then a high school teacher. Then I took a job coaching in Japan. Then I met my wife and I wanted to get married and I suddenly had to think about a future. So I came, went back to Australia and did my PhD at the University of Queensland and I graduated in 1999. So, yeah, so this year's 20 years. Right. So I've only been an academic 20 years, not 40, mm-hmm. where someone my age or my position might, might normally be. Yeah. But during my, I did my PhD on in the sociology of sport, and it was probably the most, yeah, it was definitely the, the most stimulating intellectual experience I'd had in my life because, we, you know, I don't know about other people, but for me, I'd always just done as little as possible, just get by, couldn't be bothered. It was so engaging. And Bourdieu, a French sociologist, his work still really shapes my thinking. And people like, uh, certainly the um, the constructivists, Vygotsky's work, but like Dewey's a, a pragmatist, but he's got a special type of constructivism, I think. And my dad, um, he's no longer with us, but he was a teacher and he did his master's after the war in Sydney University. And he just, he talked to me so many times about Dewey and I was just never interested. Right. And, you know, at least I discovered it late, not too late, you know, and his ideas, Vygotsky's ideas, Bruner, um, work in that area, it, it just, it helps me, th- like I've read um, comments on uh, Bourdieu's work, is that it's good to think with, hmm. not to bash someone in the head with, because I know more about this theory than you do, and that's how I use it, I, you know, and Bourdieu actually suggests that himself, you know, that that it, it, it is used for analysis, it is used to get an outcome, to get, get a result, to have some findings. And mm. their work makes sense to me. I can work with it very easily. I don't put down other theories or other people's work, but, but I, I work, that's the work I work with, and it really underpins this approach, uh, just the, the idea that, we, uh, we, that learning is social and it, it's interpretive, and we, we each construct our own knowledge that's unique to us. It might be very, very similar to others, but it, mm. because it's based on our own life experiences. And so when you, this way of coaching sits on, on, on that assumption. Mm. So with holism and humanism, the very, those two co- um, theories really inform athlete-centered coaching. Yeah. And I asked you this question earlier. Someone said to me, What's the difference between athlete-centered coaching and positive pedagogy? 
And your reply was X. But it was straight. There was no no need to think about it. it was that positive pedagogy for sport coaching is athlete-centered coaching, but it's applicable across all sports. Mm. You know, something like Game Sense, which I put a lot of work into, and I will be doing another book um, based on the conference in Tokyo at, mm-hmm. at some stage, an edited book coming out of that again. Yeah. Um, I don't believe that things just pass away and they're no use anymore. Uh, but teaching games for understanding, uh, game sense, is a whole raft of approaches growing all the time. But they're just basically on team sports. And team sports are ideal for, for athlete-centered coaching. But as my students said in 2008, it's in Sydney University, what about the others? And so positive pedagogy is applicable to anything, not just sport. The more I work with it, it's like a philosophy for life. Hmm. Well, I was saying the other day at the conference last week, we um, presented a bit of work on athlete-centered coaching. And for me, I was presenting my study that I did. It, and I said that athlete-centered coaching is, and this is how Lynn Kidman portrayed it, and I might be wrong, but she said team culture, questioning, and TGFU. Well, to answer your point, TGFU wouldn't be applicable to an individual sport coach. So what's the the thing there? So as you've written in the book, the makeup there is like designing and manipulating games, giving some problems or setting some problems and leading and developing an inquiry process with the athletes, all of which are then generalizable features to positive pedagogy from what started out to be athlete-centered coaching potentially. I mean, I guess that's Lynn's perspective on it. Well, that's what it was in the initial sort of readings of the book that I picked up on yeah. those three concepts. Oh, look, I had a um, you did. I had a chapter in Shane Pill's book on athlete-centered coaching, and yeah. where precisely my chapter was on individual sport. Yeah. Um, I, one of the troubles is that it's never been explored, uh, and it's it's not. People, I don't think people even consider it. Like, oh yeah, yeah, team sports, you know, especially um, invasion games, they're, they're ideal for game sense, TGFU mm-hmm. and so on. The other, the other yeah. ones can be used as well, but it's, it's sort of ideal. But people, when you come to something that's technique intensive, you know, in the 1990s, especially in the US, there was this debate, is it tactical or is it technical? Tactical versus technical fighting and fighting which well, one's I better I think they still have the debates on a daily basis for coaches I think well you know they're inseparable you know and I think that's one of the advances in the work in game sense and other other areas where you recognise that you can't separate they're all interacting complex components of any game hmm. well and then with the notion of like uh, holism it's also that if you just focus on technical and tactical, you might do the reverse Jerry Maguire. You might lose the players at hello rather than have them at hello. So you, you, you've got to have that component based on, uh, in your sessions too. Look, it's, it's teaching games for understanding, right? Yeah. It's game sense. It's the game. Yeah. The game has to be the focus. If you're teaching team sports, 
whether it's the sport or we just use the word game, mm-hmm. right? Um, the focus has to be on the game. And, and I, when I did a long time ago, I was doing some seminars or workshops in schools in Victoria and uh, when I was at University of Melbourne and uh, the teachers would listen and think it was really good, but invariably get a question like, well, what about the skills, Richard? You know, what about the skills? And mm. I say, what about the skills? Well, so, you know, when do you teach the skills? And I would say, you know, as always, a, a good skill is what works in a game, not what something that looks pretty on the sideline and isn't applicable. It's what works in the game. So mm. to develop that skill, it's got to be developed in a context of a game. I know Eddie Jones pretty well. We had a lot of conversations when he was in Japan. I sit mm-hmm. down and talk to him mm-hmm. a couple of times in Sydney. Very smart man, um, and he was the same. He just said he, his his whole drive was to replicate game conditions at training and to to build pressure, game pressure on his players through the sessions. And he said it has to be, has to replicate. In, that were his words. It has to replicate the game. He also said to me that the coach's job is often to be almost um, unneeded. Mm -hmm. So then when you take game and you just do teaching for understanding, I guess, in a potentially in an individual sport. There is a teaching for understanding. Yeah, Yeah. well, I know, Harvard and whatever. But if you are teaching technique for understanding, is you could use that. I mean, I'm not trying to steal another and give people ideas to run off and write their own book necessarily but the the notion is that when you do that what are some of the elements that were being borrowed from the game sense ideas so like for example questioning might be one and so yeah well what i what i basically did was when i wrote that game sense book in 2013 it came out 2012 um i went through it I'd done a lot of work on game sense and I, I broke it down into what I thought were its basic aspects or features of, of game sense. When I wanted to work on positive pedagogy, I'd been working with that practical, like bottom bottom up approach for years. Just years and years and years and just thinking and working through it. And then when I thought, look, I've got a package here, you know, I think I've got the answer to how you teach any sport Mm. or actually things even beyond sport Mm -hmm. through this very positive approach. But what what am I going to call it? I I didn't want to be one of those academics that just wants to lay claim that was mine. So it's to put a title on it, Mm. just make a couple of changes and call it another name and say I'm responsible for that. But because it was so different, it had to have a name. And I reflected on... All my experience of teaching, like undergraduates, teaching games for understanding and game sense, was how positive it was. And of seeing them work in schools and how positive the kids' responses were, the laughter and the joy and the movement and the joy of discovery and all those things. And so I thought, oh, okay, positive pedagogy. I better check if there's anyone else has mm. used that. So I go straight on. Google, mm. positive pedagogy, all over the place. It's just everywhere, you know. And one I looked at was on music, teaching piano. Mm. And she talked about the joy. All, you know, it's common stuff. So yeah. I could, I still can't think of a better name. I, I think it's not 
There's got to be a better name, but I can't think of one. And but it does, it sort of tells what it's about. That it, it is positive, mm-hmm. um, but it's not. We had the conversation earlier. I I hate fake positivity. I hate false pos- insincere positivity. Mm. In my first book on positive pedagogy, I drew on an example of my daughter again, her private school in Melbourne. The ex-students were given coaching jobs for their first couple of years, and she she was an elite-level junior swimmer, but she wanted to play a team game, so she played football, soccer, for um, one season. And she said at halftime, they were down 8-0. Now, yeah, I'm, I'm not a, a, a soccer player, but... Like eight nil to me. That's that's pretty poor. Like you, you, we'd say that's a drubbing. Yeah, right? you're getting you're getting yeah. tonked for sure. And yeah, yeah. she said the the young girl came up, and that school had been working with positive psychology. And the young girl came up and just told them how great they were. And they, I think from memory, Amy said she said, "Oh, you're doing that's awesome, girls. Oh, you're doing really well. That's fantastic. Just keep it up. Don't give up. Mm. You know, you're doing your best. You're great." And my daughter said to me, you know, I, I felt I couldn't trust her because I knew we were doing really, really bad. Mm. You know, so um, that's not what being positive is. And in positive pedagogy, the positivity is is shaped by um, Seligman's, Seligman's PERMA model and by Anton Vosky's work, um, his work on both of them aimed at well-being yeah and if you apply those you know for example with with Anton Vosky he thinks that people who experience well-being in life they um, he was a sociologist so a bit bit you know Seligman was a psychologist yeah so Anton Vosky strength-based work Mm -hmm. you know that um, your life you'll experience people who experience well-being have in common that they understand what's going on in their life. You, they can make sense of it because, you know, a lot of people don't understand what's going on around them and that leads to stress and worse things like mental disease. Mm. Uh, that they understand they've got comprehensibility. That they feel that they have manageability. So that the stresses facing them, whether it's work, private life, um a love relationship, a family issue, whatever it is, that they can manage it, that mm. they've got what it takes or they've got something they can draw on, friendships with other people, whatever, mm. to manage those those stresses and those challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly, that it has meaning. You know, and that's a really important thing. If, if you can have a, a season where you provide all that or you know, even a session, but a season as well. But all that's evident, and you can overlay overlay that with the PERMA model, and there's a common overlap there with those two. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you're you're very likely to be able to provide positive learning experiences, but possibly and likely positive development, especially with young people. But the but the notion here is that the positivity comes from the growth and the rea- the realisation that there are going to be challenges, but yeah. we've got resources at our disposal to handle that. And if we haven't got resources, that's okay too, because we can go away and work on something to get better, mm. 
to better prepare us for yeah. what is coming up in front. So that again was something that we kind of talked about. Um, are there any? What were some other kind of um, myths that we talked about? So one was about. Uh, oh look, I was. You know, the All Blacks. Um, I'm an Australian. I live in Christchurch. I live 50 meters from the All Black from the uh, Crusaders training ground, and they're the best provincial rugby team in the world. I know their coach pretty well. You know, as an Australian rugby fan, it's mm-hmm. it's really debilitating. Really, we <laughs> just keep getting flogged by the All Blacks all the time, and we never beat the Crusaders. Um, but they're good for uh, for a reason, and, and if they take an athlete-centered approach, it's not exactly the same as what we're talking about. It's a different level, and they're different people, mm-hmm. but they're very similar aims. And so, you know, like a good training session for the Crusaders. You won't necessarily hear any laughs or slaps on the back or giggles or, you know, being positive doesn't mean you have to be overtly happy and laughing. Mm-hmm. I think they would get like a fighter if you're training a couple of fighters, boxers, you know, and they could have a really good session and they might be really tired and they might be whacked around a little bit, you know, but if they feel satisfied that they've learned something, that they're a better fighter than they were for the beginning of the session... That's positive, you know, and I just think we we often have a very simplistic view of positive. Mm. Um, and like I said, with my daughter with the soccer, that's not positive, you know. That girl was trying. Yeah. Well, and like you say, is you're better off having a, a conversation about this is the situation, <laughs> how can we make this positive, but we might realise it's going to take a while to... To get there, and there's going to be some hard work that needs to happen in the middle. You, you got to, you got, you know, the humanistic side. Like, um, humanism's a, a philosophical position, but I got most of my ideas from the um, humanistic psychology of the 1950s, 50s, and and 60s. And at same thing, the concern with the fact of how we objectify people as objects, and we're actually the human beings. And mm. so, a coach, a good positive pedagogic coach understands his or her players, how they feel. It don't, it, you don't have to be Mr. Nice Guy or Mr. Nice Lady or Miss Nice Lady. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be real. You, you can be hard. You, I just, you know, people coach in different ways that suit them in the situation. Um, but you have to understand them and you have to be tuned in and sensitive to their emotions, to their moods. Um, you know, what do they say with the All Blacks? Good, good, good All Blacks make better All Blacks make better people, or is the better people make better All Blacks? But it's the same yes, the thing is that you know the sport and life outside are connected. You know, so if you've got a, a player, uh, you're in a high level team, there's a lot of pressure, and a player's having relationship problems. You know, where he's splitting out with his wife, or or, or a woman splitting out with the husband, or whatever. Um, is that something you've got to consider? Well, their manageability is off because they're probably struggling to manage. Well, that manageability thing fits in really well to the emphasis in positive pedagogy on setting the challenge mm-hmm. at the right level, mm-hmm. especially with team players. We can do it with individuals as well, but you've got a, a team, you get them humming, you build up, you know, you start the session. Um, I, I, I would normally suggest starting for success, and as you go through the session, pushing them, putting the pressure on them to the point where it just doesn't quite break down and that's your maximum performance level 
and that's where they're going to have a good chance to experience the sort of flow experiences. That's where their 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 optimum learning mm-hmm. through, through that. But you have to you have to be so tuned in to be able to manipulate that and to manage that learn because if you the longer you maintain that, the more learning goes on and the better they'll be. Well, even in a like just something simple like a strength and conditioning yeah. context, if you manage the progression of the workout, yes, you're gonna get them in that flow state as if the weights Goldilocks, you know, the weights too high yeah. or too low, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's not right. So therefore, you know, one level it might be that they get injured or they, you know, it's just yeah. overly overwhelming. So you disrupt the manageability, yeah. but for no real good reason. So you you're a little bit off. Um, so what are um, what are some things with positive pedagogy like you've got the second edition of the book with myself, yep. we've got a third edition in play. Yep. Um, so what are some things that you're thinking about playing around with in the third edition? Well, talk a little bit about uh, actually on the second edition, because the first edition was all about individual sports. Yes. So the second one is an edition of team sports. Yep. So tell us a little bit about the genesis there. Why, why is that important? I, you know, I go back to that student at Sydney University. I can't remember his name. It was a, it was a guy. I can't yeah. remember his name, unfortunately. <laughs> Sorry. Um, maybe somehow he'll be listening to this podcast. That would be awesome. That would be fun. <laughs> and if, if he's out there, please email me. Just Google me. He'll find my address. Um, that, that was a book where I thought there was a need. Because um, like I said, at that conference um, in, Bright, in Brighton, in the Bearer Conference, you know, yeah. and the, the chair said, oh, do we need another model? And we, we need something for te- technique intensive sports. Some people don't like that phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, so I'm gonna use it, you know. so. What individuals, where individual sports are very different to team sports. In team sports, you can argue about the need to integrate skill and technique within everything else, like I said mm. earlier. But you come to something like swimming, throwing a javelin, you know, doing a sprint start, most of those athletic events for a start. Technique, like I followed my daughter's career from, she started swimming at one, up in Brisbane and she stopped at 13 due to a bad injury from overtraining it was, and mm-hmm. um, having uh, post-viral syndrome on top of that, you know. And, mm-hmm. But I followed her whole career and getting to know people like Rowan Taylor, who's an Australian Olympic coach, sort of a gruff character but very bright and he really knows what he's talking mm-hmm. about and he was just sort of saying... It's all about technique. Now, some people would think I'm anti-technique. So when I'm talking about rugby, uh, coaching, uh, say, rugby, football, basketball, something like that, I'll, I'll be saying you can't... The technique is part of the skill, which must fit in with the game, and it must be learned in that sort of... that game context. But when it comes to swimming, for example... The techniques of prime importance, and what I saw through watching my daughter's experiences was young swimmers being flogged up and down the pool to get super fit, and at eight, nine, ten years of age, they'd be 
state champions. Mm-hmm. But one of Amy's coaches once said to me, Richard, go out to Homebush. That's the Olympic, ex-Olympic pool. Um, and he said, have a look, apart from Ian Thorpe, have a look for all the junior, when you go for the program, mm-hmm. for the state championships, have a look at any age group swimmers who won mm-hmm. that you re- you recognised. None of them went on. Yeah. You know, and so he said, the technique is really, really important. And so you need to teach them technique early. The focus has got to be on technique, even if they're not winning because they're, because they're learning their technique. So that seems to contradict, but it doesn't. It's This was why we needed that book. Mm. It was how do you... Um, how do you apply these ideas to techni- to teach <coughs> technique? Now, with my students at Canterbury, part of their assessment is um, coaching individual sport using positive pedagogy, uh, usually in a small team. But most of them don't have a background in individual sports. So I allow them to take a skill from a, te- a technique from a team sport mm. and coach that. And so this answers some of the questions I used to get. You know, what about technique when you, you need it? I, you know, if you really do need it, well, this is the way. Um, you don't, even when you're technique, you don't have, teach technique, you don't have to abandon the inquiry-based, student-centred, athlete-centred approach. Well, in the good coaching, and Wade Gilbert talks about this in his book, is there's alignment in everything that you do. So if, if you're going from playing a game and being all like step back facilitation and then they start doing more technical work in a team sport and you start kind of getting on them and kind of pushing and being yeah. all, like overly more direct the other end of the spectrum, yeah. the players are like, crikey, what's going on? So and yeah. it's the same when you're coaching in a, if you if you're more vocal in a game, yeah. but not very vocal in the training session, there's no alignment there. So, you, so that is a good uh, good idea. So that the idea of uh, another sort of thing about including the team sports though was that we had a bit of a I guess hypothesis that with some cultures around the world, there might be more of an emphasis on a more direct approach to teach some more technical type of team sports mm. like football American football where yeah. the game is broken down to a very finite yes, yeah. element but so then there's a focus on teaching technique but it's still done in a very direct manner yeah. so this opens it up a bit as you would yeah. say in one of your papers yeah. way back so that coaches can step back and use sort of inquiry approaches so that alignment's there when they're doing more yeah scrimmage type things in football and more individual uh, technical types of things look I um, the second edition I was really the first edition I was really aware that we that I had just focused on basically British sports as played in the British colonies Mm -hmm. Um, and after coming here last year and being exposed more to American sports firsthand, and I went to that conference in Orlando with you as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just thought, oh, you know, this we have to, we have to think of because I had thought that uh, like American football is so regimented and controlled, and uh, you know, at the professional level, the coaches 
voice tells the, the quarterback what to do and everybody does what they do. Yeah. But that's a, that was a misinterpretation on my part, is that, you know, after talking to coaches here and mm-hmm. said, well, even within whatever the call is, things don't always go according yeah. to plan and some everyone's got to make some sort of a decision or a change mm-hmm. on the spot. Yeah. And talking to a lot of your, a couple of your students, mm-hmm. um, one of them who wrote a chapter in the book as well, uh, and I think in the next book there'll be one on baseball. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I was going to say, even that baseball, cricket, softball are good, again, other good examples of their team sports. Yeah. I mean, even badminton, tennis, they're team sports, but they're actually quite technical. Yeah. Like you, you probably need to do a little bit of time focusing on some repetitive yeah. practice at times. And kind of step out of the game. So, like I said, this gives a way in which you can s- stay within your kind of philosophy mm. if you've got one that's around being a little bit more open with your coaching yeah. approach. And um, without kind of saying, well, I'm a game-based coach in an individual team sport context, it kind of sounds yeah. weird. Um, so what's the... So it went from individual to team sport. So with the third edition, not that we're trying to sell books here, by the way, but uh, it's good to kind of get the chronology and the thinking and, and whatever. So what's going on with the third edition? Uh, look, I, I have loved this process of discovery and sharing. Um, I don't think it's an ego thing with me. I, you know, trying to be honest, I, of course I get satisfied um, if people like my work, but I, I I get more excited when people contact me, or talk and we share, and mm-hmm. um, I think that this is a, a philosophical approach that's very sound, and you know will be developed as as time goes on, and um, individual coaches will develop it their way because it's not a step by step instruction. Here's the things you should be doing. You can choose according to your situation, your preferences, your experience, the people you're coaching time of the season, whatever else, how you you use those. But the first book uh, was quite, th- at least half of it was strong theoretical, mm-hmm. stuff on learning theory and so on. I didn't, I left that out of the, we left that out of the second book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second book has shifted towards being slightly more practice-based. It's probably about one third We've got more chapters on theory, but they're shorter. Yeah. And so the actual sort of content of the book, there's a bit more practical stuff. And I think the way we've written it is more geared to, towards a practitioner. Mm-hmm. And the third one, you know, I, the third one will be very practical in, in terms of a, a series of case studies of coaches who have tried it to different degrees, coaches of different levels, different nationalities, different sports, different dispositions, who've tried it to different extents of success or failure. Mm-hmm. And so we will have uh, uh, an introduction and uh, a chapter at the end, we'll concluding thoughts. They will bookend it. Mm-hmm. Oh, pardon the pun. Um, at these sets of stories that the the only problem for us, but it's been solved, is that this is a new approach. And 
it hasn't been around long enough to have lots and lots of people to choose from. You know, so, and when it comes to um, individual sport, technique intensive stuff, there's even more of a problem. Yeah, uh, that's, yeah. that's where I've drawn, I've written a few of those chapters myself. Yeah. But I think that adds to the book because we've got a couple of people who are postgrads or just finished postgraduate work, a couple of my PhDs who've just finished and, and out, out working, that sort of level there. <laughs> of exploring and developing to someone like myself or you mm-hmm. that, that's got a lot of experience and they're written in different ways. I think each, each of them will provide some really um, interesting insight uh, into you know, what it's like. So it's really a shift very strongly towards positive examples where people can... People probably shouldn't read this book only and then go back, you know, ideally mm-hmm. you should re- probably read start with number two yeah the second edition where you've got team games and individual sports discussed more fully the theoretical yeah then go on to this one and mm. that one would be look here's the theory here's some examples of people doing it but this book here is really focusing on people's reflections and that's how you get good at coaching that's how you get good at, mm. at playing that's how you get good at life you know is reflect critical reflection on your experience discussion interaction and change well like you said we were going to chat earlier and you want to get the experience by having the experience i mean you you don't sit there and if you pontificate and sit there and go well i think i'm going to try to ask more questions and you never do mm-hmm. when you're coaching well then you're not putting yourself out there so a lot of it is I mean like we played um, I've played sport to a high level I've coached sport to a yeah. high level like when I went to my first national championship game with my women's soccer team I didn't know what the Blazers I was doing we actually lost but the next year or two years later we won but the thing is it, it's scary yeah. and you're scared and all the players are scared but by having the experience, you can... I mean, how many stories do you see... Like Norwich City got promoted from the championship this year in the English Championship Soccer mm-hmm. League. Last year, they missed out because they lost in the playoff final. Yeah. It happens all the time. Middlesbrough did it a few years ago. Yeah. They lost in the final one year. The year after, they got promoted by a country mile. Yeah, They won the league. And it happens all the time because you somehow... You have that kind of thing where you're scared and you go in and because you're a bit too tentative, mm-hmm. you um, you don't, you know, but you only learn by going in there and then you can reflect on what went on so that you can lift yourself up to another level. I, I think you're touching on an issue here that's really important with this approach. This approach with those sort of humanistic relationships with, with your players and it requires honesty, integrity and trust and respect both ways. Mm-hmm. A, a traditional coaching approach, the, the, the power advantage the coach has got over the players allows them, it gives them a protective shell. Like when, when my daughter was swimming and she asked the coach, why are we doing this? Shouldn't we do that? Mm-hmm. And he would just get back in the pool and do what I told you. Mm-hmm. A lot of responses, because like, they don't have the answers. I'm not saying this person didn't know about swimming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. They don't have the answers and they don't like being asked. 
because they can, they've got a power position. When, when, you, when you get yourself closer to your players, you're still in charge. I mean, you can, really, you can really empower them amazingly and appear from the outside to be not doing much. Uh, but you know, your work actually goes, is what's not seen, mm. preparation in particular, and, and the relationships you've built with your players. But a, a play, you know, like the, the teacher that, um, you know, if, when I was growing up at school was writing, writing on the board and makes a spelling mistake or something, and the kid says, oh, sir, you spelled it wrong. And you say, oh, look, I'm just testing, you know. A blatant liver, I knows that. <laughs> this way here, this honesty is is required. So, like when a student asked me in class, "What about this?" I didn't say, "Well, listen, guys, go away and read about it and think about it and come back next week and let's talk about it." I just, I didn't say it. Those, no, I just, I don't know. And then I had a suggestion. That honesty is really hard to get because you, this approach here, when you really have gotten on top of this approach. It's like being naked in front of a group of people. You know, like you've got no lies, no deception, no facade. You just, and that's what you expect back from your players as well. And I think when you can get to that level, you're really going to go somewhere. But you were saying earlier, being scared to try things out. Someone who might listen to this podcast or read the book, one of the students at our sessions here, Oh, I give this a crack. I think you know. I'll have take it easy, just step by step. Ask two or three questions in the whole session. Oh, like you said, start a bit. Like you might have to be quite direct and yeah. But ask just every now and again. Do a little thing per share. I mean, just something simple. Like depending on where you're at, because like we said about the third edition, Mm. the chapters that we've got, we're going to have coaches that who've been trying this for a long time, yeah. some are brand new, and I think that's going to be the beauty of yeah. it, is we'll have coaches there who will be honest and say, yeah. I didn't really know much about positive pedagogy, I've read, I've read the second book, and then I was like, oh, can I, because I've tried this out and I've got something to say mm-hmm. about it, um, and I think that that's going to be really powerful with what we're doing, but I get scared all the time to do things, and what I say to people as well is, like people are setting up leagues and things like that but if you don't set up the league and start where where are you going to go my um my wife's brother was like oh i'm going to um we're going to save up yeah. to have children and the first thing we said is like why bother you're going to be saving up for the next 20 years and then you're too old and guess what you might not be able to get pregnant so you're better off just cracking on and getting it done and Oh, we're not ready. Well, <laughs> when are you going to wait till? Yeah. My, um, like I said, you've got to be honest. You've got to be prepared to be um, exposed, um, to let them see that you're trying. Th- and I think you need to be honest. If I've played a bit of rugby, I'm, I've done a lot of martial arts, you know, so if I'm teaching a karate punch or something, I know what I'm doing. I've done so, so much training. But if I'm teaching football, I never played football uh, in, in competition. If I'm teaching basketball, same thing there. I just write up front. I'm, I'm not an expert here, but I am an expert at pedagogy. So I'd say to my students in New Zealand, like, 
if for some strange reason someone asked me to coach the All Blacks, I don't have, I don't have the knowledge. What am I going to teach those guys about rugby if it's a matter of transferring knowledge? But what I can do is pull them together and get the maximum, this is collective effort, the holism, mm-hmm. as a team. I could do that. You know, so I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be hopeless, but I wouldn't be teaching them. I'd be helping them learn and putting them together and asking questions and, and that was the, the way I would work. Rather than go in and try somehow to pretend that I'm really good at rugby and I've got something to show them. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's a good good example in taking what I was saying forward. So, um, for you, in terms of, you know, we talked about the, the book for the third edition. Um, if people want to get a hold of you and talk a little bit more about yeah. your work and this concept, its genesis, or other work that you do that are related to this, like your work with indigenous sport and things yeah. like that. How can they get in contact with you? You go on, you go on the University of Canterbury website and, and look me up at my email addresses at Canterbury is richard.light at canterbury.ac.nz but you, my private email, you can send me there as well, is... Um, Richard Light, one word, 11, at gmail.com. Right. Um, and then you're on social media a little bit, or Twitter. I have a little bit of Twitter, yeah. 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 So I, you're I, at, at Richard Light, is it? Uh, it's Richard. Is it? But I can put it in the show notes, it's yeah. fine. So that people can uh, send and you... And I'm a, on LinkedIn and as they, well. They can just yeah. put in Richard Light. Facebook's University. just for my friends, I don't use it for work. Yeah. So um, if anyone needs Richard and wants to talk to him a little bit more, then that's what we will be doing. Well, don't ask me to look at your assignment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah don't. <laughs> a good one. So um, hopefully this gives you a bit of insight into positive pedagogy. We're actually sat in the same room, so we don't get to meet up with each other very often, but this is obviously a good opportunity, which I was, I've been waiting for this day since I released the po- uh, first part of the podcast so I'm very glad that we've managed to chat to Richard and we'll be doing a bit of work at a coaching symposium this week at Ohio University so we'll be getting some of the students working through some of the ideas and getting them hopefully on the next episode to share some of their reflections we thank you very much for listening to the podcast if you've got a review leave us a review tell us how we can get better so we can keep going forward with our positive pedagogy take care and Have a good one.